Take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. I'm very excited to begin sharing with you the moral law of God. When you see Exodus 20, you see probably a heading that says the Ten Commandments. There are some very unique things that take place at the giving of the Ten Commandments that are unlike any other things that had happened or will happen. And so beginning in verse 1, notice it says, Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter your male or your female servant, or your cattle, or your sojourner who stays with you. Verse 11, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder... You shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is the passage today for our message, and it is my hope that you will be able to understand every bit of this as it flows together. If you would imagine with me an old-fashioned clothesline, an old-fashioned clothesline, and you have those two metal iron T's like my grandmother had in Senton, Texas with three lines. Well, just imagine those two T's on the end and then there's that, that, that wire that goes across, that cord. I want you to think about that cord in this context as being for our message, what does the Lord require? That would be the clothesline. What does the Lord require? And on that clothesline, I'm going to hang each one of these points. Today there will be three as I introduce to you this passage of Scripture in its totality. So the question that is our clothesline today, the central theme, what does God require us, require of us, is found here in this passage. 
And I want you to notice from the very beginning, in verse 1, that it says, Then God spoke. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So to answer, what does God require of us? He tells us, number one, with a direct address. With a direct address. As the people stood there in awe at Mount Sinai, they heard the very voice of God. They heard God speaking. They heard the voice of God introducing Himself to them. Not just Moses. The people when God spoke. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You can cross-reference this with Deuteronomy chapter 4. Ladies and gentlemen, listen. God is about to direct or is directly addressing His people. So when we ask the question, what does God require of us? God says, I will address you directly. And He speaks. There, the follower, then what follows is a list of stipulations, which I'll speak about later, which forms the basis, and I want you to hear this, the stipulations that follow in verses 3 through 17 form the basis, the foundation of the covenant relationship they have with God. Now I'm going to come back to that term covenant relationship. And I'm going to come back to the people of Israel in that covenant relationship. But just know today that the stipulations of verses 3 through 17, what we know as the ten words, the ten commandments, the moral law of God is the foundation upon which the covenant relationship is established between God's children and God in covenant. Covenant is not written. Covenant is spoken. It's interesting to me, the foundation of the relationship is based upon what God is speaking directly. He directly addresses the people. And there were letters. There were later termed the ten words. These words here were called the ten words in, in Exodus 34, in Deuteronomy 4, from which the, we derive what we use today known as the Decalogue, or we call it the Ten Commandments. Those people weren't there standing there going, when is He going to be done? After four, I mean, how much longer do we have to stand here? All of these people for the first time in their life was hearing the voice of God. I would tell you if God decided to thunder from, from uh, Radio Hill Road, I would not want Him to stop at ten just to hear His voice. The only one that had any experience with this was a, 
very old man at this time named Moses, who 40 years prior heard God say, I am that I am. And now they all hear. And there is is something more important that is emphasized here. What is said becomes inscribed upon two tablet stones. It is inscribed chapter 24 and 31. It mentions this. So let me say something to you first of all. As God, as a way of introduction, as He is this direct address, let me give you some stipulations here that are, this will be familiar to many of you, that are vertical and horizontal, just so that we may understand the stipulation that is outlined here by God in the first four commandments is to govern Israel's relationship with Him. Those are the vertical commandments. These are the stipulations that govern that govern Israel's relationship with God. God's chosen people are to observe this relationship, these stipulations with God. There are only four. Then the second part... And and let me just say this, these represent the principal requirements which God placed upon them to establish, listen to me, to establish the maintenance of the covenant. This is all they were to do. To establish and maintain the covenant that God had made with them. Then you have the second stipulation or the second group of stipulations which governed their social behavior amongst each other. These are the horizontal commandments. The horizontal. This was a pattern unto which they were to place the highest priority. That is simply this. The rights of the individuals as it is regarded to life, marriage, and possessions. That is specifically stated in these horizontal commands. Life, marriage, and possessions. They were to obey these commands out of the love for God. Out of the love for God. And the best way they demonstrated the love for God was the way Jesus says... Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. But we'll get to that. We'll get to that. So strictly speaking, let me show you something about these Ten Commandments that we need to understand. I have just four things I want to tell you about the Ten Commandments here. It's important doctrinally that I explain this to you at this moment so that you understand this direct address, but it gives us the opportunity to teach you doctrinally about this. Here is the first thing. The Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, is not a collection of laws. It is not a collection of laws. And the reason is, is because there are various factors that set it apart from the other legal collections of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. 
Let me explain that to you. We know this first because God spoke these Ten Commandments. First, God spoke directly to God's people. Moses, Moses did not act as the intermediary. All of the people heard it. Moses didn't come down from the mountain and say, these are the Ten Commandments of God. He came down from the mountain having transcribed what all of they had heard. These are the Ten Commandments of God spoken by God. The Ten Commandments are spoken by God. The laws of God in the Bible are written by Moses. That is a difference. That's first. Second, we know that the Ten Commandments, and I have to correct myself right here, the Ten Commandments were inscribed on the tablets, the Bible says, by the very finger of God. That's chapter 31, verse 18. All other regulations were written down by the hand of Moses. So first of all, they were spoken. Second of all, they were inscribed by the hand of God. All of the other laws in Scripture are written by the hand of Moses. Thirdly, the Ten Commandments are hardly detailed precepts. They are not detailed precepts. Since no punishment is listed... You say, ah, but the second and the fifth commandments seem to contain penalties or seem to contain blessings or benefits. But I want you to understand something. These are motivational clauses. These are motivational clauses. They are designed to promote the observance of the divine instruction. That's why they are there. If they were penalties, there would not be the necessity for such a detailed accounting of the law that would follow all 630 plus commands of the law of God. And finally, there is no human court, there is no human law court that could even begin to enforce the prohibition against coveting described in the Ten Commandments. There would be no human ability, no human court that it could adjudicate these commandments. So the covenant stipulation here in chapter 30, 20, excuse me, are listed, last of all, write this down, they are listed in descending order from greatest to least. And the focus of these commandments are on the children of God and their relationship with God, and the children of God's relationship with other children of God. That's why it is called the moral law. They summarize this within the two-fold division as the love for God and the love for one's neighbor. So we have, first of all, what does God require of us? He tells us directly, so hang that on your clothesline. Number two, 
what does God require of us? He tells us, number two, by defined actions. By defined actions. The substance of chapter 20 comes as no surprise to a biblical reader. The Lord has announced beforehand in chapter 19 that He would speak to Moses in this way and that the people would hear. That's chapter 19, verse 9. And how, and now He is proceeding to do that very thing. So what I want to share with you, first of all, in this introduction, this, do you remember when our parents used to tell us this? They would say, I have told you this before. I am not going to tell you this again. You remember that? Well, that is a bit needful sometimes. How often do I have to tell you, put on your seatbelt or don't drive fast? Or, or maybe you're an adult and your wife says, how often do I have to tell you, pick up your socks? Some truths go beyond bearing repetition to requiring repetition because of their fundamental importance. The Ten Commandments require a fundamental repetition in our life to understand them. And in the present case, the repetition about the Lord's law for the Lord's people, we have said, comes from God here in this text. We know, and it is God who spoke the words, Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of Egypt. Yahweh, your God. This is not a word for the people whose God is not Yahweh. These are words for the people whose God is Yahweh. And the people to whom the words were addressed are those who, it says, had been brought out of the house of slaves. Now let me tell you something. We're coming up on the 4th of July soon, and that is a time where we celebrate liberty I want you to see something. I want to build an argument within what you're hearing. These people are not being given the law to be put in bondage. They are given the law because they have been liberated. Up until this point, they had been slaves for 400 years in the land of Goshen under the horrible tax masters of Pharaoh. And now they have been brought out of the house of bondage. They have, the word there, the Hebrew word there, is slavery. They have been brought out. Now they have a new code to live by. They have been liberated. They have been set at ease. They have been set free. And so God gives them this new ethic to live by, this new law to live by. They have been given this new liberation. Ladies and gentlemen, at the founding of this country... The Declaration of Independence was sent to old King Georgie for them to know that the people of the colonies were going to live by a different law and they were going to be freed of the tyranny of the British Empire. And thus, what did they do? They wrote their own law and we call it the Constitution. 
That word, that law, the Constitution, no one in this country would believe one day that we were put in bondage by having the Constitution. We, our forefathers, were set free because of the Constitution, no longer under the rule and reign of the British. Right? So to call the Ten Commandments something that puts a Christian in bondage is absolute hogwash. Because whom it was given to were people that lived under the law of Pharaoh and now they live under the law of God. And it is is fitting that in their freedom, what is the first thing God does? He hymns them in with their freedom. Showing you, this is how you relate to me. This is how you relate to each other. Amen? There's no bondage here. This is freedom. This is liberty. This is the first appearance of liberty in Scripture. In fact, you want to know something? This liberty is so amazing. This is the first picture of liberty since they went into bondage. You say, well, when did they go in bondage? In Genesis chapter 2. In the garden. And now a new epoch has been ushered in. Since Genesis chapter 3 verse 13 is the first time, but what you have is the proto-euangelion, the, the, the proto-gospel, the first time it appears. Now you see how the gospel is moving throughout Scripture and the new covenant of grace has moved. God has delivered His people over this course of time. And what does He do? He gives them a righteous, good, and godly moral law to live by that is perfect and it absolutely expresses His absolute desire. And not only did He leave it to a man to interpret, He said, I will directly announce it. And I will define the actions. So notice, the word originated in God Himself. The fact that these words were spoken of God Himself is an indication of the uniqueness of the occasion. Throughout the course of the Old Testament, the Word of God expressed in the words of God come from all forms of the famous prophetic claims. Thus says the Lord. The prophet would say, thus says the Lord. Or to bring out the inner flavor, this is what the Lord has said. This means that the Lord Himself came forward in in the person as the speaker. Moses didn't say, thus saith the Lord. Moses didn't say, the Lord has said, they heard it. I wonder what it sounded like. I wonder what it sounded like. And all they, although they used the vocabulary, the literary style, and the skill natural to each of them, their words were God's Word and the words were theirs. But at Sinai, that's speaking of the dual authorship of Scripture, it's at Sinai, there was no dual authorship. There was no dual speaker. The people heard only the Word of God from God's voice. And the Old Testament calls what He said to them the ten words. Deuteronomy 4.13. Just write it down. It stresses something, and this is important. It stresses both the verbal nature of the revelation and also... Each commandment is a self-contained word in its own right. Here is where our English fails us. Because in the Hebrew, it's just straight up simple. We have to put qualification on it. 
We may ask why 10 and why this particular set of 10. Well, let me tell you, the second question is more important. Why this particular set of 10? Deuteronomy 5 verse 22 notes these words were spoken by the Lord. Listen, listen, these words were spoken by the Lord and then goes on to observe that He added nothing more. Listen to me. Deuteronomy 5.22 in support of Deuteronomy 4.13. Deuteronomy 4.13 says there were ten words. Deuteronomy 5.22 says make no mistake. God spoke ten words. And the reason He spoke ten words is because there's not nine and there's not eleven. There's ten. No more, no less. What He said is all that had to be said. Now that may not mean something to you, but it means a lot to me. And why it means a lot to me is this, because people have been trying to add and take away for a long time. And it's to suit themselves. This tells us something here. When it says ten words, and that's all He said, it means this, God said what He meant, and He meant what He said. There needs to be no addition. The Ten Commandments are the Ten Commandments. Amen? And this is the testimony of Scripture. And notice, he says this. He says, I am. Now I want you to know something. As tempting as it is for me to go through the Scripture and spend our time on the I am places where Jesus says, I am, I want to tell you something about this appearance here in Exodus. In the Hebrew... It is the only place that I have found going through all the times that it is used this way that the am is not in it. It says, I, Yahweh. Now, that doesn't change anything for us. I am Yahweh. But it's like when you sign your will or power of attorney. Let's use your will. I, State your name. I, James T. Egan. Not, you don't sign it. I am James T. Egan. Being of sound mind, which is questionable. And of good report, which is all that. No, you say, I, James T. Egan, do solemnly swear that I will uphold, and so forth and so on. In this passage, it's used different in Exodus, even in this passage, this chapter, where it's you've got I am. Here, it's I. I don't know why the English translators put it there, but it's I. And it's the only place it's used in this sense. I don't understand that either, but it is. But it does tell me one thing. This is a very unique passage of Scripture. Before he announced, he says in chapter nine, in Leviticus 19, he says, I am the Lord Yahweh. And it helps us to understand this. And I just want to say this reoccurring over and over again in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, God says over and over again, I am the Lord. But I want you to understand something pastorally. The Lord does not say, I am the Lord, because He wants you to do what I tell you because I am the Lord. That is not the way this is expressed. This is not how the Hebrew mind would understand it, being a native speaker. It is not, it is, it, it sounds like a demand to submit to his authority. 
Do what I tell you because I am the Lord. But that is the wrong way to read it. What happens here is this way. He uses the divine name of God, the personal name, Yahweh. Jews will not say that word, Yahweh. He says, Yahweh, the divine name of God, the divine personal name of God. And it is recurring over and over. It begins in chapter 3 of Exodus, and it says this, listen to me. This is the nature of what he says. I want you to live this way because I am who I am. That's different. It's not, do what I tell you because I'm the Lord. It is, I want you to live this way because I am who I am. That's different. You know why? We see it with the calling of Isaiah. When Isaiah is called into the throne room of God, the great vision takes place. Even the angels have their eyes covered and their feet covered. Isaiah is undone. He's a man of unclean lips. Then he is cleansed immediately. He's pardoned. He's purified. He's commissioned. And a question is asked, who shall go for us? And this is how Isaiah answers. He says, here am I. Not here I am. The Bible is very clear. The I am statement is who God is. And we are to be like I am. And the best we can do is to be an am I. God wants them to follow these these commands because this is how He is. And He wants them to be like He is. There is nothing more infectious under the sun than a person who walks with his or her God. Nothing. There is no law of attraction, no pheromone, nothing more attractive than a man or a woman who walks with his or her God. And I say his or her because this God is personal. This is not the personal God of the Canaanites, of the Egyptians, of the Hittites, of the Girgashites. It is not the God of those who hate God. Atheists have to do two things to be atheists. One, they have to hate, they have to deny the existence of God, and the only way they can do that is they have to hate Him, which is thereby to say, April Fools, to deny something, you have to posit it exists to deny it. To hate something, you have to know it exists. Here, this is not the personal God of the atheist. This is the personal God of all those throughout history whom we sing about the redeemed. That's why we sing redeemed, how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and all the rest of it. Right? This is speaking, this is the personal God. 
This is not the postmodern God that says, well, I accept that you believe what you believe about your God. Now let me tell you about my God. I want you to know there is no God but Jehovah. And I can say that lovingly with charity. And in all things, we should speak with clarity and with charity. Because unless they hear by God Himself, they will remain lost. Until God quickens their heart, He is, the Bible says, their enemy whom He will by no means clear the unrighteous. God who spoke the words is the one who delivered His people from Egypt. The very one who spoke these words delivered him from Egypt in Exodus 3, 12-43 confirmed that he said by his subsequent acts in the Exodus so that Yahweh would forever be the God who redeems his people and overthrows their enemies. Just write down Exodus 3.15. God overthrows the enemies of his people. They are his people. Amen? Why are they his people? Because he is their God. Amen? Glory to God. And it is God's saving mercy and just judgment. This is Exodus 34, 6 and 7, that God preserves His people. People say to me, they say, not not in the journey of course, but I'm asked, and, and they say, we don't need to read the Old Testament. Can you imagine what you would miss if you didn't know this? He is your personal God that speaks to His people. He protects them. He delivers them. He saves them. He's Lord over them. He is for them. As Jesus said, if God is for us, who can be against us? Amen? Last of all, He tells us what does God require of us. He gives us a a direct answer. He, he gives us a direct address. He gives us defined actions. Just read verses 3 through 13, 17. But he tells us of our dutiful answer. And so there's no answer in this text, and this is why now we need the New Testament. Jesus Christ said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Our answer comes from our Master. And it is a dutiful answer. Dutiful means it is an answer that is given by our duty. An answer given by our duty. Talk is cheap. I want you to know humanity didn't come up with that. God did. God didn't ask for the confession. He asked for the behavior. He asked for the change. And so He tells us a dutiful answer. So God makes it as our rule because He is, first of all, our moral lawgiver. Write it down, our dutiful answer. He is our moral lawgiver. He tells us this right here in verse 2. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is God that did this. God is the one who makes it the rule of our life as He is the moral lawgiver. He is our Lord, He is our God, and He is our Redeemer. Therefore, we are bound to keep the commandments if He is our God, our Lord, and our Redeemer. We're bound to this. 
This was never, ever taken away from us. In Luke chapter 1, just write it down. Luke chapter 1, verses 17, verses 74 and 75. Luke 1, 74 and 75, Jesus says to grant to us that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, might serve Him without fear and holiness and righteousness before Him all of our days. This is a direct reference back to the Ten Commandments by Jesus our Master as Luke introduces his gospel. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, if you would write this down, Peter shows us something. He says, but, but like the Holy One who called you. Like the Holy One who called you. Now this opens up an interesting thing. Like the Holy One who called you. Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. When Peter is mentioning this, remember Peter is the preacher to the Jews. He is the evangelist to the Jews. I am quite certain that there had to be a memory of those who were in the synagogue listening all of this time to the Old Testament and now the appearance of Jesus Christ who has come and gone and the ministry of His message and the magnification of of His people declaring the mysteries and the wonders of the love of God. He says, but like the Holy One who called you, it would not surprise me in the least that some of those Jews sitting in the synagogue were thinking about what happened 2,000, 3,000 years ago when God called from the top of Mount Sinai and said, I am the Lord your God. The calling. In that verse alone, we have our Lord, our God, and our Redeemer. It is difficult for some sometimes to see, to pray, God our Savior. One would say, no, we don't pray to God our Savior, we pray to God, we pray to Jesus our Savior. Wrong. God is both Savior and Father. Jesus is both Savior and Son. Holy Spirit is both Savior and Holy Spirit. This word holy is the Greek word agios. Hagios. Listen to what it means. This is how we can interpret the Old Testament Decalogue. It means to be of superior moral qualities and possessing certain essential divine qualities in contrast to what is human. Exemplary living. Exemplary ethics. Exemplary morality. Not that of, that is good of a man or a woman, but is like God. Like, I am because I am. And I am wants you to be like Him. That's what the word means, to be holy. Doesn't mean perfect. Be therefore holy as in this passage. He says, you shall be holy for I am holy. Notice, not only do you have, He tells us this dutiful answer about uh, Him being the, the moral lawgiver, but also you have this, number two, this idea of obedience to God's revealed will. The greatest, threat, the greatest threat today to the modern church are those who practice, who preach, and who believe that there is a revelation from God outside of what is contained in the Scripture. 
to me, that is an issue of fellowship. Amos 3.3 says, How can a man walk with another man if they cannot be in agreement? Just as there are not 11 commandments, and there's not just two, there is not any other source of God's Word to us outside of what is revealed in the Scripture. Period. We will never, ever, ever, ever come to any other place. Well, God has told me this. Give me the chapter and the verse. Well, God spoke to my heart here. Give me the chapter and the verse. I think we have established that when God wants you to do something, He makes it very clear. What is interesting today to me in modern Christianity and particularly in America is people think the more confusing it is, it must be more legitimate. This is calling bad good. God's Word is clear. And Jesus said, let him who has ears to hear, hear it. Micah chapter 6, verse 8, obedience to God's revealed will. This is what God, this is what God wants from us. Obedience to His revealed will. Micah chapter 6, verse 8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. All great writers and speakers speak in triplets. God did not have the prophet give 16 things right here. He just said three things. This is what God requires of you, that you love justice, that you do justice, you be just, that you love kindness, and that you walk with your God. It doesn't tell you to do anything else. That's it. Very clear. This is what God says. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22, Samuel said, He has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Obeying the voice of the Lord. Has God as much delight in miracles and, and extreme unctions and mysticism and all of these kind of things, do it your own, feel your own and all these things, more than obeying the voice of God? Behold, Samuel the prophet, whom there is no recorded sin in his life. We know he is not perfect, but there is no recorded sin in his life. Samuel says, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifices. Oh, obedience has fallen on a hard time. And it's why our nation is a reproach. It's not because of the lost. It's because the children of God have placed sacrifice and silliness above the obedience of God. They have left their first love. They have left their freedom. Now you hear people say, oh, you just sound like a legalist. Let me tell you something about legalism. Legalism is just the one side of the same coin of lawlessness. 
Legalism denies grace, and hyper-grace denies the law of God. It's just the same thing dressed up in different things. And one of the other reasons that we're so, we find ourselves fighting such a culture war is because people have determined that they know what being a Christian is and they know what this is and that is and they use our words but they don't use our dictionary. They don't use our dictionary. And so what does he say here? He says, He's told you, O man, what good is to do what the Lord requires of you. That's justice to love kindness. Walk humbly for your God, because obeying the voice of the Lord is better than sacrifice, and, and to heed, and better to heed than the fat of rams. And so you have here, he gives this dutiful answer in his preface. He shows us that he is our Lord, our God, our Redeemer. He says obedience to God's revealed will is the second part. We have to obey. That is our answer. And then the moral law itself, verses 3 through 17 of the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments, is the revelation of our obedience. Listen to Romans chapter 2. Verses 14 and 15. Romans chapter 2, 14 and 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. And if they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their consciences bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. This is what you see when you go up and you ask a person and you say, have you come to a place in your spiritual life where you know for certain you have, uh, you have uh, uh, received the gift of eternal life or is that something you're still working on? And that's all, oh, yeah, I'm certain of it. And tell me, what is the basis on which you have come to this knowledge that you are certain that you have uh, uh, obtained eternal life? If God asked you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? And their response usually is always the same thing. I have not broken the Ten Commandments. That tells me a whole lot right there. I have not broken the Ten Commandments. When I step before Jesus, and if they do ask me, and the question's already been answered, and I'm not going to have to do it, but when they come up, if I was asked when I stood up before Jesus, and they said, James Egan, why should I let you into my heaven? The first letter out of my mouth is not going to be I. It's going to be Jesus. Even the lost are without excuse because the law of God is on their hearts. That's what Paul is teaching here. And by the way, Paul is teaching on the doctrine of grace. Romans 10 verse 5, it says, For Moses writes that a man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. So you really, all of us have to ask, how shall we live? What does God require of us? Obedience. And notice what he says here. It's both can be comprehended and it's comprehensive. Then I'll give you the conclusion. Write down Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 4. He wrote on tablets like the former writings, the Ten Commandments, which the Lord had spoken to you on the mount from the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly, and the Lord gave them to me. Now, 
just go with this to Matthew 19, 17 through 19. This continues the thought. And he said to them, Why are you asking Moses about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You notice there? Honor your father and your mothers, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Interesting. Jesus Christ talking to the rich young ruler who wants to follow Jesus but's not willing to leave his Cadillac and his turbocharged camel behind he, he, and take up his cross and follow Jesus. Jesus doesn't give him the vertical commandments. He gives him the horizontal ones. He pointed out his place of need, his place of death was in his relationship to others. And, but yet, what Jesus shows us here, speaking from Deuteronomy and then here in Matthew 19, is that what He requires of us, the revealed will of God, is easily comprehended. Write that down. It is comprehended. And then I want you to see it, it with the last piece. It is comprehensive. It is comprehensive in Matthew 22, 37 through 40. And he said to them, said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments, now notice this, Jesus is using the word commandments. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Everything else that was written after the Ten Commandments is dependent upon these two things. And in what Jesus says, you have the four vertical and the six horizontal. Everything that God has commanded... Everything that God has decreed, every law that He has given or abrogated in the New Testament, all of it is dependent upon the moral law of God. What does God require of us? To obey Him. Does He want us to obey Him so that we may be saved? He wants us to obey Him to prove that we are. And to prove it to who? Ourselves. Ourselves. So in conclusion, let me tie it together with grace and law. Let me tie it together with grace and law. This teaching from the introduction brings into full focus the grand theological and spiritual significance of all that had happened up to this point in the lives of the Hebrews. It was the God of salvation who imposed this law on the people. It was the God of their salvation that imposed this law upon the people. And it is the grace of God that saves them from the demands of those laws.
Do you understand? It was God, the God of salvation, who imposed His law on His people, and it is God's grace that saves, preceded, that saves those from the demands of the law. The people were given the law not in order that they might become the redeemed, rather, they were given the law because they were redeemed already. The first thing we do when somebody expresses with a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they confess in a way to God that they willingly repent and turn and renounce their sin, the very first thing is you put them in the Gospel of John. That's what I do. They have to learn that they're loved by the God who is going to confine them to a way of living. And they have to learn that this God loves them so much that He is going to put them in a box on how they are to relate to Him and they and He will relate to them based upon the work of Christ. Not they get saved never again to darken the doors of the church or to open a Bible or to depart from what is orthodoxy or what is true. You establish the love of God, the love for God, and the obedience to the same. The law of God is a way of life that He sets before those whom He has saved. This is our way of life. And we engage in that way of life as a response of love and gratitude to God our Redeemer. This is why we do not cheat on our spouse. This is why we do not covet our neighbor's lawnmower or dog or spouse or swimming pool. This is why we do not steal. This is why we honor our parents. This is all of that. This is the philosophy, the theology, the ecology of the life of the saint. And the words were addressed to those who had already been brought to liberty. So ladies and gentlemen, the law of the Lord was addressed to those who, brought out, who were brought out of bondage and its aim was not to bring them into a new bondage, but to establish them in their freedom. And the reason that we shall now take 11 more weeks and study the Ten Commandments is because in it we can establish truly our freedom we have in Christ. We can have the life of liberty. We can have the life of justice. We can have a life that is the pursuit of happiness. All of because the Lord's law is the law of liberty. And what God requires of us, He expects us to live the same. Amen? Amen.